You are listening to the Long Hollow Podcast. For more information on Long Hollow or to watch a video version of this podcast, visit www.longhollow.com. Now, when I was growing up, I thought that Christmas was about people and parties and presents. Anybody grew up thinking that was Christmas? And uh, I used to wait every year for Christmas Eve. My aunt Debbie and Uncle Johnny would come over uh, to visit and spend the night for Christmas. And my mom allowed us to open early Christmas presents from them. We were never allowed to open anything early from mom or dad. Anybody had a mom like that? My mom was militant about that, and so are we, by the way. So unfortunately for our boys, they, you know, they try to open an early gift, and if it was up to candy, they would, but not in my house, right? We're gonna grow up waiting for Christmas, but uh, one of the things I used to do, I remember I would come out on Christmas morning, my sister Lori and I would kind of barrel into the living room, and mom and dad the night before would have two piles, like some of you do if you have multiple kids, and one pile was for Lori, the other pile was for me, and at that moment, before I would open any gift, I would survey the landscape of the Christmas presents to determine <clears throat> and make sure Lori did not get more presents than me. Anybody used to do that growing up? Now, what's crazy is that we've never taught our boys how to compare gifts, but they just instinctively know how to do it. Like even today, the Christmas tree has a bunch of gifts around and Rig and Ryder will just kind of take their time and they'll look for the names on the gifts and they'll pick them up. They'll kind of measure them in their mind, right? They feel the weight of it. They guesstimate the value of it. They put a subtotal in their head and they compare to Rig, right? Like Ryder is always making sure Rig has no more than him. And uh, I can't blame him because I, I do the same thing, honestly. Um, when I give Candy her gifts, I, I watch her open the gifts I bought for her. I make a total in my head compared to the gifts she bought for me and I subtract it. No, I'm glad, I'm glad I don't do that. I really don't, Candy is like the ultimate gift giver. She like, is, uh, and, and my spiritual gift, I told you, is what? Gift receiving. So it works perfectly, and I'm just telling you, it was a match made in heaven. But the challenge for us with gifts, you'll know this, if you, if you anticipate something and you expect something, it loses the awe and wonder of it, right? Like if you, you start anticipating gifts from people, you can easily be trapped into this mindset of entitlement, like you're supposed to receive something from another person. Well, Christmas, Christmas can be the same way. Do you know Christmas is about a gift? Only it didn't come wrapped in brightly colored wrapping paper under a tree, it actually came wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. And if we're not careful, we can miss the reason for the season, right? Like the greatest gift that God gave to mankind was his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sin, right? And what we're gonna learn today in our time together is that God answers prayer. Even though it's not on our time, God is a faithful God to answer prayer, and he always keeps his promises. Isn't that encouraging today as believers? We serve a God, when he makes a promise, he keeps his promise. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter one, and we'll consider verses five through seven. We'll read a little bit of the beginning of Luke and then we'll go to the end of the chapter. But I wanna teach you about the faithfulness of God and how he answers prayers in his time. Luke chapter one, we like to say word at Long Hollow. If you're at home or in person, you can say word. Say it like you mean it. Amen, amen, thank you. 
Thank you. In the day, <laughs> the word of the Lord. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, it's no accident, right at the beginning of the gospel, we learn of this couple and we know their names. Right out the gate, we'll learn about that in a, in a moment. Both of them were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to the commands and the requirements of the Lord. But they had no children. You talk about a hard turn here. You have this wonderful couple serving the Lord, doing everything right, and then you have this hard turn, and they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. What I wanna show you is two things about the faithfulness of God and our response to be faithful to him. The first is this, we need to have faith in God. If you're taking notes on your phone or your iPad or, 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 or a journal. We need to have faith in God. I, I was going to say we need to keep the faith in God, as the great philosopher George Michael uh, said years ago, but, but now I just said have faith is going to prove the point. Let, let me give you the backstory. Zechariah has faithfully served the Lord his entire life. The Bible says they have been devoted to God, and yet in the midst of their devotion, they find themselves in a present situation that was unbearable. To be in the first century without children was considered to be under the curse of God. In fact, if you didn't have children in the first century, it was a sign that God was punishing you in a sense for something that you had done. And the townspeople would have looked down on them. The, 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 the guilt and the shame would have been unbelievable, unbearable. And, and they would have felt like it was crushing them at times. But the Bible is clear. In the midst of their horrible situation, they still served and trusted God. I wonder where you are with that. Very easy to trust God when things are going your way. It's very easy to trust God on the mountaintop. How do you put your faith, or where do you put your faith when things are difficult? Notice what it says. It says, both of them were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. What this shows us is that they never turn their backs on God, even though it's difficult. Another insight I think is fascinating is it shows us that God answers prayers even when we sometimes don't believe he's gonna do it, and he answers prayers in his own timing, which shows us we have to be careful what we pray for because he just might answer it, right? I mean, this was not the timing they expected, but God's always on time, it's just not on our time. Anybody can amen to that, but he's always on time. Now, one of the principles in this passage I wanna get across is the inextricable connection between the power of God and the faith of his people. And I wanna show you this in the following way. When the angel comes to get, even though he, this is a man of faith, even though this is a man of trust, when the angel Gabriel visits Zechariah, he still doubts God. In fact, the angel says, hey, listen, you're gonna have a son. I know it's pretty incredible. I know your wife is older, but you're gonna have a son and he's gonna be named John. And by the way, he's gonna have the same power as Elijah and he'll be the forerunner to the Messiah. What does Zechariah do? Does what we would do. He laughs, right? I mean, have you seen my wife? I mean, she's in her late 60s, early 70s. There's no way she's gonna have a child. And we probably would have laughed as well. But Zechariah is, at that point, struck mute for his laughing. 
And for the next nine, I mean, ladies, imagine that, nine months of pregnancy with no dad talking, right? Imagine that, right? They would have to listen totally to everything he said, right? So he struck mute for nine months in silence, and all of that happens because he questioned God over the pregnancy. Now, I went and did some research, and I found out that the oldest lady on record, modern record, to have a child, you ready for this? was in 2008, her name was um, Kari Panwar, and she had a child, in fact, she didn't have one child, she had twins at the young age of 70 years old. Imagine that, right? And her husband got to share in the sleepless nights at the young age of 77, right? And they didn't just have one child, they had twins. So I want you to imagine you 60-year-old, seven-year-old ladies and men, if you had a child at this age, imagine that. Imagine if you had twins at that age. Imagine if you just had a boy at that age, right? I mean, Zechariah and Elizabeth, their whole world has been turned upside down. But again, it shows we have to be careful what we pray for because God just may answer our prayer, right? It's a reminder that we shouldn't give up on God. Why? Because their faithfulness, I believe, was connected to the power of God. Now, before I teach you this theological principle, let me kind of frame the argument for us. And I wanna teach you kind of a backstory about God. And you know this, but it's a reminder. God is sovereign, okay? The word sovereign simply means that God is the ultimate source of power and authority. God can do what he wants, he does it when he wants, he does it how he wants. He doesn't consult anyone's opinion. He doesn't ask for anyone's advice. He doesn't seek anyone's approval. God will do what he wants to do and has planned to do whenever he wants to do it, okay? That's how God works. However, at the same time, the scripture teaches us the sovereignty of God. There is this tension in scripture with these two apparent theological principles that are at odds with one another. And the tension, the Bible has no problem with this tension. God is sovereign and he has planned for everything to happen. However, the Bible is clear. We as his people should pray in faith for God to act. So how do you reconcile that? And by the way, I'm gonna use the word prayer and faith interchangeably, I know they're different, but you'll see why in a moment. We know from the Bible, there are certain things that Jesus did not do because of the faithlessness of the people. Remember when he went to his own hometown in Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, it says that Jesus did not do many miracles because of their what? Their unbelief. So Jesus was not doing miracles. So you understand, they were ready for the hometown hero to come back. I mean, this is the man who raises the dead. He gives sight to the blind. He produces catfish po'boys on the side of a hill. Probably didn't do that, but if he was from Louisiana, he definitely would have done that. But, that, but this is the kind of guy, they were like, man, this is it, Jesus, he's coming back home. And the text says, a sobering reminder of the faithlessness of the people. Jesus did not do miracles because they didn't believe. So you see the connection. I'll give you another one. Remember the father whose son was demon-possessed. Jesus is up on the hill on the Mount of Transfiguration with the three disciples, and the disciples below are basically brought this boy who's been demon-possessed for many, many years, and the dad basically says, I wanna bring my disciples to you to see if you can do anything. 
And obviously after many tries, they failed. And Jesus comes down to the, from the mountain and he enters a business meeting gone bad, basically, a church business meeting, right? So you got religious leaders critiquing and the father helplessly goes to Jesus and he basically says these words. He says, Jesus, I brought my son to your disciples and they could do nothing for him. Can you do anything? And Jesus kind of laughingly says this in Mark chapter nine, verse 23. If you can do anything, what kind of question is that? What do you mean, can I do anything? And then he says this line, everything is possible for the one who what? Believes. Here's what he's saying. Here's the inverse of that. Nothing will be possible for the one who doesn't believe. Here's what Jesus is saying. What kind, of que- what kind of question is that? What do you mean, can I do anything? The question is never with the power of God. The question is, what do you think I can do? And I love the Father's honesty, right? He says, Jesus, I believe, remember this, but help my what? Unbelief. Like I have a little bit of faith, but boy, I need some more faith. Can you strengthen my prayers with faith? Former pastor of Bellevue Baptist in Memphis, Dr. Adrian Rogers said this quote about prayer and faith. He said, I wanna tell you that you do not have a failure in life right now. You have a failure in prayer. (laughs) You do not have a need in your life that prayer could not supply the need for right now. There's not a sin in your life right now that a proper prayer life cannot overcome. Friends, there's a connection, as I said in the Bible, between faith Our faith and the power of God, they are connected. And basically what we see is that our faith either unleashes the power of God or it limits the power of God in our life. And so I would ask you, where are you today? Is your faith releasing the power of God or is it restraining the power of God in your life today? Now, don't think, well, Pastor Robbie's going off the deep end. He's into the word faith movement. And man, it sounds like you're preaching heresy, Pastor, that... Are you saying we can name it and claim it and blab it and grab it and believe it and achieve it? No, I'm not saying that. The word faith movement has kind of hijacked this principle, which has caused us to be scared of it unwillingly, but they hijacked this principle to basically say this to you. And there's churches that preach this on a weekly basis. The reason you're not healed, the reason you're not rich, the reason you're not healthy is because you lack faith. If you had just enough faith in prayer, then God would work, but because you lack faith. And the problem with that heretical teaching is that the onus is on you. And the problem is on you. And friends, I'm here to tell you, that's not a biblical concept. In fact, I would say this, the real prayer of faith, coming close, is that you trust God regardless of whether he answers your prayer the way you want or not. That's the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is is trusting God in spite of the results, in spite of the circumstances. What I'm teaching here is a principle found in the Bible. The problem is not that you and I are believing God for too much. The problem is that you and I are not believing God for enough, if anything at all, right? Matthew 7, 7, and I believe Jesus gave this because he knew our hearts. He said, ask and you will and you will find, or you receive. Seek and you will find, 
knock and the door will be open. Here's what he's saying. If you ask long enough, eventually you're gonna get an answer. If you seek passionately enough, you're gonna find me. If you knock and keep knocking and keep knocking, eventually the door is gonna be open. James, Jesus' half-brother in James chapter four, verse two, said it this way. You don't have because you don't what? You don't ask. I don't know a lot of you personally, but I do know principally where you are. The greatest tragedy in your Christian life right now is not unanswered prayers, it's unoffered prayers to God. It's not that you're praying too much, it's that you're praying very little to any at all. Mark Battison wrote a book on prayer, and here's what he said about prayer. He said, I love this opening line. If your prayers are impossible to you, they are, if your prayers aren't impossible to you, they are insulting to God. In fact, I would say if, if you're praying a prayer that you can do in your own strength, it's not even a prayer to be offered to God. He's saying, if your prayers aren't impossible to God, they're ins impossible to you, they're insulting to God. Bold prayers honor God. And God honors bold prayers. God isn't offended by your biggest dreams or boldest prayers. The greatest moments in your life, watch this, are the miraculous moments when the human impotence and the divine omnipotence intersect. Here's what he's saying. Human impotence, our inability, versus God's omnipotence, his power, superior power, come together and intersect. The last line is the best. Ultimately, the transcript of your prayers becomes the script of your life. Let me interpret. What he's saying is, you can, a transcript is like when I preach this sermon, they'll make a transcript of the message and put it online after the fact. What he's saying is, you can take your future self and look at the past transcript of your prayers to determine the kind of life you're gonna live. Pretty interesting. I had a church member in, uh, from Brainerd Baptist in Chattanooga, his name was Jim, and uh, he got a job working for Samaritan's Purse, which is uh, run by Franklin Graham, if you're familiar with the, with the ministry and uh, the, the, the Christmas boxes, if you remember the, the shoe boxes. Uh, and he reported directly to Franklin Graham. And so he's pretty overwhelmed that first year as he was planning his budget. His team had worked for a couple weeks to put this budget together. And they thought they had some pretty big goals that they were gonna shoot for. And so he went into Franklin's office. He was a little intimidated for the first year, if you can imagine. And, uh, Franklin was sitting there and he, he took his little budget and he pushed it over to him and Franklin looked at it and he said, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive, Jim. He said, let me ask you a question. Do you think if your team works really hard that you can accomplish this budget? He said, it's gonna take a lot of work, Franklin, but I really believe if we work really hard, we can accomplish this budget. Franklin immediately turned the paper around, slid it back across the desk, and he said, I want you to take this home, go back and pray over it, and come back with a bigger plan. He said, I want a plan, quote, watch this, with room for God to work. He said, if this is your plan and you work hard to accomplish it, at the end of this year, everyone would say, man, that was great work on the part of our team. But if you put a plan together with room for God to work, the only thing people can say at the end of it is, that is something only God could have done. Friends, we have a big God who wants to do big things in our life and we need to have the faith to trust him that he will do it. Let me ask you, where's the room for God to work in your life? 
Are you praying big prayers to God or are you offering insulting requests to him? We serve a big God whose power meets us at our belief. That's why Jesus said, let me remind you, everything is possible to the one who believes. Let me explain it to you this way. This is a summary sentence, but I want you to get this. There are certain things in your life that God has planned in eternity past to come to fruition in your future that will only be realized through prayer. Say it again. I want you to get this. Profound insight here that that the Bible teaches us. There are certain things that the sovereign God of the universe has planned in eternity past that he has predicted and determined will come to fruition in your future that will only happen if you pray. I'm convinced that when I get to heaven, Jesus is gonna say to me and you and Colin and Brandon and Kim, man, we had a great ride. Tim, what a ride we had. You were serving me, we served together. This is, all, look at all the stuff I was able to do through you. And then he's gonna walk us over to another room and we're gonna say, where are we going, God? Oh, I wanna show you this room. This is the room of the potential possibility that could have happened in your life if you would have prayed. This is all the things I wanted to do, but you didn't pray. No, I don't wanna go in there. No, no, come on in. No, God, seriously, I don't wanna go in there. I promise you, it will blow your mind at the unleashed potential when we pray. Friends, think of it this way. Faithful praying is a portal that releases the predetermined plan of God. Faithful praying is a portal that releases the predetermined plan of God. What have you been praying for lately? Have you been asking God for something miraculous? Have you been praying for something impossible? You know, maybe some of you like Zechariah and Elizabeth are praying for a child, and maybe you've had a few miscarriages or maybe one miscarriage, it's just overwhelming to think uh, about it, just overwhelming pain and and grief just thinking about it, and you're praying for God to do the miraculous with a pregnancy. Maybe you're praying for the salvation of a family member or a friend. Students, maybe you're praying for that lost classmate next to you. Maybe you're praying for financial relief in your, in your family. Maybe you're praying for a relationship. Maybe you're praying for, for a son or daughter who's addicted to drugs or alcohol. Maybe you're praying for Christmas morning when family who hadn't been together in a year are gonna be in the same home and all the strife and division that potentially could happen there. Maybe you're just praying for God to do something in your health or your family's health. I don't know what you're praying for, but I do know how a Christian proves that they have given up on God. You know the first sign that a Christian lacks faith in God is? They stop praying. You stop believing in God again. You stop coming to church regularly. You stop worshiping God. You stop singing. You stop trusting in God again. Friends, if Zechariah and Elizabeth never gave up on God late into their life, how in the world have we? Amen? But here's the cool thing about God. Even though we lack faith, God is still faithful to do what he's planned to do, which is point number two. Not only should we have faith in God, but God is always faithful to us. Now, I wanna teach you something about the character of God and the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, when he's on earth, is always teaching spiritual, supernatural principles with earthly, physical encounters. 
So he takes everyday circumstances, like a guy throwing a seed in a field, or a man digging up a hole in the ground, or someone walking on the road, or birds in the, I mean, Jesus is always taking physical encounters to teach spiritual insights. For example, when Jesus tries to teach, and this is what you gotta realize, when Jesus performs a miracle in this book, there's only four gospels, and if the gospel writers include that encounter in this book, whether it be a miracle or a teaching, you have to realize there were literally thousands of miracles Jesus did. I mean, there's so many, John says there's so many miracles in the book in the, all the books in the world couldn't hold them. So if the encounter is in here, if the miracle is in here, if the words are in here, they are meaningful, there's something. For example, when Jesus heals a man born blind, it's not just to change the trajectory of his life, which it is, it's Jesus showing the disciples a spiritual truth. Here's the truth. You see this blind man? He has lived in darkness without light for his entire life. That's how you guys are without me. And just like I'm gonna give him sight and turn the lights on for him, that's what happens, boys, at the moment of salvation. So here's what he's doing. He's giving a supernatural principle from an everyday encounter, okay? Let me give you another one. I don't think it's any accident that when Jesus comes off of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he comes down from the mountain after teaching on what the kingdom of heaven looks like on earth. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is, by the way. The Sermon on the Mount is, this is how a kingdom person should live ethically on the earth. In fact, what he's saying is, this is what happens when the kingdom comes to earth. When someone slaps you on the cheek, you turn the other cheek. When someone takes your coat you, or your shirt, you give him your coat. When someone says, walk a mile, you say, I'll walk two. That's the kingdom of heaven on earth. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is available to everyone, even the outcast. Now watch this. I don't think it's any accident that the very first person, wait, it'd be like this sermon. Soon as I'm finished, there's a guy right here. This guy waiting for me, I don't think it's any accident that the first person waiting for Jesus after the sermon is a leper, Matthew 8, 1. Why is that important? Because this leper was an outcast. This leper was untouchable. This leper was on the fringe of society. And yet the first person Jesus heals is this man. Why? To show the disciples, boys, this is what it looks like when the kingdom comes to earth. No accident. Another one, when Jesus is on the way to heal a 12-year-old girl who's dying, remember this? And he's walking through the crowd and it's overwhelming. All of a sudden, a woman is crawling on her hands and feet. And Jesus says to the disciples, hey, somebody just touched me. And Peter, who never talks, but on this moment, you know, decides to speak up. You know, he's like, hey, Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but there are thousands of people. Everybody's touching you, boss. And Jesus says, no, somebody touched the hem of the garment. And when he looks down, he sees a woman of all things, she's been suffering from hemorrhaging from blood for how many years? 12. How old is the girl he's going to heal? 12. So the reason I'm showing you this, and, and there's like thousands of them in the Bible, by the way. This is what I'm trying to teach you. The physical healing allows us to peer into the supernatural realm. Okay, why is that important? Because a lecture teaches facts, bullet points, outlines, theological treatises. A picture tells a story, and a story leaves an impression 
that you never forget. Now, I don't, all that to say this, I can't prove this is why this happened, but this is how my mind thinks as I've thought about this a lot over the last two weeks. Could it be, well, well, let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered why God decides to cause Zechariah to be silent and mute for nine months? You ever thought about this? Like, why that? He doesn't often do that in the Bible. Why that? I mean, maybe he was like Peter, he needed to be quiet. Maybe, but probably not, right? I don't know what the reasons are for that, but I do think here's a suggestion. Maybe God was demonstrating to the people physically with the inability of Zechariah to speak something spiritually. What's the spiritual principle? You gotta remember, we learned this last week. Up to this point, the nation has not heard or, or, or experienced the power of God for 591 years. They haven't had the presence and place of God for 586 years. They haven't heard the prophetic voice of God for 400 years. Could it be that God is showing the nation a visual picture of a man who hasn't spoken in nine months as the exact thing that's happened to them from God for six centuries? And the very first thing he says when his mouth is loosened is praise God for what he has done for his people. I don't know if that's the reason, who knows? That's how my mind thinks, right? But regardless, this is what God says. If you miss that one, let me give you one that's very obvious. And here's the point. God is going to prove to us his faithfulness to his people in the, you're gonna love this, in the meaning of the names of John the Baptist's parents. <laughs> This is one of those insights in the Bible I learned recently. It's like, this has been in my Bible for years and it's been hidden in plain sight. Now, let me give you kind of how God's name system works. In fact, I would say this about you. There's no accident, your name is what it is. There's no accident. Yeah, but my parents picked it. Yeah, I know that, but God providentially planned it. And I would say that to you, that the reason in the Bible God gives names or changes names is to do two things. One is, to talk about the character of him, but a name also shares the plan they have for, the, for their life, for the world. And so God is always in the business of changing names. In fact, the name Abram, you remember Abram in the Old Testament? Abram, his name was High Father, and God changes his name when he becomes the father of the nations to be Abraham, which is father of the multitudes, which God says, you can look at the stars in the sky, that's your that's your descendants. His wife's name, Sarai, actually means my princess. God changes the name to Sarah, which means mother of the nations. Makes sense, father of the nation, mother of the nation. Jacob, one of their grandchildren, his name means supplanter or deceiver. And then he has this encounter with an angel where he wrestles with God, you remember this, and God changes his name to Israel, which means having power with God. Did you know Jesus actually changed a few names in the New Testament? There was the name Simon that Jesus changed into Peter. Now, when I read this this week, I thought that's interesting. Simon means God has heard. And obviously God has heard so much from Simon. He says, this man won't shut up, change his name, right? I mean, I don't know, that's a joke, but who knows? So he's like, this guy speaks too much. Let's call him Peter the Rock. And what a fitting name. 
Peter as the rock of the foundation of the movement of Jesus will get up in Acts chapter two and he will preach a message where 3,000 people will get saved and the movement begins. So that's a fitting name. What about Levi? Levi, his name changes to Matthew. Levi means joined or united. He's a, he's a manipulator. He's a tax collector. He's a sinner. And yet Jesus changes his name to Matthew, which means gift of God. Now, what does this mean? The name symbolized the character of God and the plan of God for their life. So the question is, what does John's name mean? When Zechariah and Elizabeth were trying to decide, you know, do we name, God says, don't worry, I got the name. I'm gonna give you the name for the child. His name shall be called John. And John's name means God is gracious. If your name's John, that's what it means. God is great. And what that means is God is going to give you what you don't deserve. God is gonna give you something that you didn't earn. That's what it means. And boy, he is about to. Now, before I tell you the name, meaning of Zechariah and Elizabeth, let me show you the very words of Zechariah right after his tongue is loosed. Because Zechariah is gonna say something to give us a clue as to what God is doing. Luke chapter one, verse 68, watch Zechariah. The first words after nine months of silence. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. Did I mention they've been waiting 600 years? Put it in perspective. America is only a country for 250. Think how long that is. God has visited his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, just as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors. Now here's the line. And he has remembered his holy covenant, the oath or promise, the promise that he swore to our father, Abraham. Now, why is that important? Because the name Elizabeth means oath or promise. You're gonna love this. Oath or promise of God. And the name Zechariah means God remembers. And so when you put this couple together, the two names actually spell out this phrase. God remembers his promise. And friends, we serve a God that not only remembers his promise, he actually keeps his promises to his people. Now, why is that important today? Because I know in a group this size, there are some of you who would say, Pastor, I don't feel like I serve a God who remembers me. I really feel like God has forgotten about me. You have to believe that this couple knew their names and they prayed their whole life, God, don't forget your covenant. Don't forget what you promised. And yet God did not forget that. Maybe you're here today and you're looking at your hopeless situation and you're thinking, is God a benevolent God? You're doubting the goodness of God. Friends, you know what Zechariah and Elizabeth show us? They show us we serve a God who's faithful, not only to keep his promises, but to act on the promises he makes. I mean, that's what Christmas is, right? Christmas is a reminder that God has done the miraculous in the past and God will do the impossible in the future. And why would he not do that for you to the one who believes, right? Did I mention earlier, nothing is impossible for God? Did you remember that? Nothing, you know what the word nothing means in Greek? 
nothing. There's nothing that's impossible for God. Paul says it this way, God can do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask, think, or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. Let me ask you today, what do you believe God can do in your life? If Jesus were to come home with you today, what kind of faith would he find in your home? Would he have the ability or would he choose to do miracles because of the faith in your life or would he be hindered because of the lack of it? And I'm speaking to students today. Listen to me, students, what do you believe in God? Where's the room for God to work on your school campus? Where's the room for God to work in your life group? Where's the room for God to work on your online gaming community? Where's the work, room for God to work on your text group? What are you praying big prayers about? And I'm speaking to parents. Parents, what do you believe in God for? Grandparents, what are you believing and trusting God for? Single moms, single dad, what are you believing and trusting God for? Because I feel like in a group this size, some of us have lost faith in God. And I shared this earlier, our faith either limits the power of God or it unleashes the power of God. Think of it this way, the lid and the limit to the power of God in your life is connected to your lack of faith. Say it that way the lid and the limit to the power of God working your life is connected to your lack of faith. I don't know about you, I'd rather go to heaven and stand before Jesus and him have to calm me down for believing too much in him than to be called out for not believing enough, amen? That's the kind of life I wanna live. And that's what William Carey said, the father of modern missions. He said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Let me say it another way. We cannot expect great things from God if we never attempt great things for God. Friends, there's, there's a way, as I was thinking this week, how do we show consistently faith in God? What's the way we do that? And I've realized that one of the ways, in fact, one of the best ways and in, in, in continuous ways we can exercise our faith or display our faith in God is through giving financially. Now watch this. Giving financially, really? Yeah. Because when you give something so near and dear to your heart, your finances, which Jesus said, where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And so whenever you start to give to God, and many of you know this if you've done this, you have to trust God to fill the gap of the void in your life. Now this week, if you've ever given anything to Long Hollow this year, you probably got a letter in the mail like we did. Candy and I got the letter as well. And the letter was a, was a giving statement showing how much you gave this past year. And I don't know what anybody gives. You know it if you got the statement. But one of the things I want you to see, if faith is connected to giving, if your faith was measured by your giving, how much faith did you demonstrate this year in God? That's why I love the manger gift. It's not something I started. It was actually started uh, before I got here. But the manger gift is a wonderful opportunity for us as a church to give back to a generous God who has been so gracious to give us things we don't deserve, namely salvation. And the line we like to say for the manger gift is, do not give more or, or greater gifts to other people than the one who has given us all things and that is God. 
And so I wanna challenge you to give, whether you're here or whether you're joining us online, because many of you would say, hey, we watch Long Hollow, we worship every single week. This is our church home. Let me ask you to consider participating in the manger gift this year. And obviously those in the room are challenged as well. But, but the challenge is this, don't let the insignificance of the size of your gift hinder you from giving. No gift is too small. And obviously God looks at the heart when you give. And I wanna challenge all of us to participate on the front end so that we can celebrate as a church on the back end with this manger gift. So I wanna pray for us now. And I just wanna pray over us, just bow your head for a moment. And I want us to think about our faith in God. I want us to think about what we're believing God for. So just a moment in a posture of prayer. What are you praying for? <coughs> Excuse me, what, what have you stopped praying for? Maybe you, you need to come to the Lord and say, I believe, but help my unbelief. I've given up praying. I'm praying God re-energizes you today to believe again. Father, I pray with childlike faith, we would start to believe that you have done the impossible in the past, the miraculous in the Bible, and you're not a God who ceases to do those things with the ending of the canon of scripture. You're a God who doesn't just work in the miraculous working business, you own the business. <laughs> and God, if you've worked in the past, we believe you can work in our present and our future. So we're gonna believe God by faith that you're gonna work in, in the situations of those who are in need today. So hear the prayers of your people. And God, give us, give us the desire to, to believe again, to pray big prayers, to leave room for you to work. And God, I'm praying for this manger gift offering that we're gonna take up and whether we give in person in boxes or we text online or we give in the mailbox during the week, I'm praying God that you do exceedingly above more than we can ask, think, or imagine according to the power that works within us to Christ be the glory. And that's what we pray right now. We ask it today in the only name we know how. And that's the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ.